Hello, and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly, which features interviews with authors and artists creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Catherine Marsh, author of the young adult novel, Jep Who Defied the Stars. The book has just been published by Hyperion Books, an imprint of Disney Book Group, which is sponsoring this podcast. Jep Who Defied the Stars is Catherine Marsh's third book. Her first, The Night Tourist, about a boy who discovers New York City's ghostly underworld, was published by Hyperion in 2007. Marsh was named a flying start by Publishers Weekly for the book. Its sequel, The Twilight Prisoner, followed in 2009. Her new novel is the story of 15-year-old Jep, a dwarf who lives in Europe at the end of the 16th century. Questions of fate and free will loom large in the book, as Jep travels from the countryside inn, where he's been raised, to the court of Isabella Clara Eugenia in the Spanish Netherlands, where he serves as a court dwarf, and later to the island observatory of real-life astronomer Tycho Brahe. Catherine, thanks for speaking with me about the book. Well, thanks for having me. I know you have personal connections to New York City, where The Night Tourist was set, both from having lived there as an adult and having grown up in the area. Uh, So I'm curious, what led you to a story involving court dwarves, astronomers, and astrology? Uh, Is there anything that ties you on a personal level to Jep's story? Well, yes, there is. And I think from uh, the beginning, um, I was interested in the theme of fate and free will. And um, the personal story that led to this book is that um, my mother is a very serious astrologer. And um, a long time ago, uh, in the early 60s, she went to see an astrologer. And um, the astrologer had told her that she was going to have one child late in life, and the child was going to be a girl, and she was going to be a Scorpio. And um, my mom, you know, didn't settle down for a while. It didn't seem like this prediction was going to come true. And then when she was uh, in her early 40s, um, she actually ended up, um, you know, with my father, and she was pregnant, and um, she was uh, due, she found out with a girl, but there was one problem, which was that I was due in uh, the end of November, which would have made me a Sagittarius. (laughs) So, by that time, my mom was pretty into astrology, and she decided that she was going to use some herbal remedies (laughs) to try to uh, spur on her labor, so she was able to have me um, on November 11th, and I became a Scorpio, and so that fulfilled the prophecy. And (laughs) after that, (laughs) my mom um, really decided she raised me by astrology, and she made a lot of decisions, both small decisions and large decisions, based on the stars. Um, And because of that, I grew up with this really strong sense of fate. But at the same time, um, there was a lot of emphasis in, in my upbringing on education and books, and, you know, I got this real sense that um, you know, I believed in free will as well. Um, I was a rational person and, you know, <laughs> and so it was a real struggle for me to decide as I grew up, um, which of these two forces was sort of a more important one in my life. And because of that, I always wanted to write a book dealing with that subject. And so I sat down to, to write a book and, um, it was supposed to be another middle grade fantasy, <laughs> but I started to think about this topic and it led me to, um, looking into more into astrology and into the history of astrology. And one of the most interesting things about the history of astrology is that there was a time when astronomers and astrologers were really the same thing. And a lot of astronomers also practiced astrology. And when I began to look into that time, I discovered Tycho Brahe, um, 
who was a an astronomer uh, in the 16th century who also drew up horoscopes for the king of Denmark. And he seemed to, this time was such an interesting one to me in which both free will and fate were sort of um, forces that people debated a lot, but that people accepted both of them um, and struggled with them. And so I decided uh, when I started to read about Tycho, um, he, he, for a novelist, there is so much richness in his, in his story. I mean, he had a, a prosthetic nose because he'd lost his nose in a drunken duel and he kept a, a pet moose that drank beer. And I thought, wow, what great material. And then I also read that he had um, a dwarf named Jep who sat at his feet. Um, and it was that that character, and he, he was just a footnote of history that really inspired the book. And I decided that Jep would be such an interesting character to draw out this world and to write about these themes of fate and free will. Uh, so once you had that focus on this character, Jep, and the setting and time period, what was the next step? Uh, what sort of research did you feel like you needed to do? Well, there's a lot of different research that I did. And some of that um, obviously was into the lives of court dwarves. And one of the um, one of my sources for that was the Spanish painter Diego Velasquez, who I actually discovered as a child was my parents had a book of European art. And I remember looking at some of his portraits of court dwarves and just being so drawn in by them and, and who these figures were and what their lives were like. And he really captured this humanity in them um, and this sort of directness of gaze. And so I decided to, to really, you know, take a look at those pictures and to really study them. And I based several of the dwarves in the book, some of the dwarf characters on specific paintings things from Velasquez. Um, for the astrology, I obviously had my mother, which was great, um, to, to sort of be an astrological consultant for the book. But I also um, looked to Shakespeare, who is a contemporary of, of Jep and Tycho Brahe, and his plays are filled with um, astrological references. Um, and there are a lot of contradictions in Shakespeare in terms of, of whether he himself seems to believe in fate or free will. And he himself struggles with this like many people at that time. So that was kind of a great inspiration for the book. Um, I, I turned to a lot of Dutch art, to still lives, um, to some of the, the of Vermeer, who of course came along a little later, but really captured um, some of the, the sort of um, tranquility and sort of uh, domestic peace that Jep ends up sort of striving for in his life. Um, there are a couple of books that I found really useful that are, were about the lives of dwarves and also about Tycho Brahe um, and his particular world, which is so rich and full of historical details. Um, I looked through some of Tycho's letters and correspondence to get some of the flavor of, of his voice and of the time and the way people wrote. And I also tried to sort of get a very distinctive voice for Jap. And even though he would not have spoken English, I tried to create a sort of a, a version of English that would have, that, that had a particular sort of old and antiquated feeling. And I did that by really referring often to the etymological dictionary and trying to get words that were, um, you know, not in, 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 you know, to choose words that were pre-1600 words that were in use before um, the 17th century. In terms of the setting... I know Tycho Brahe's observatory no longer exists, uh, but it feels like a very real place in the book. Uh, were you able to find a lot of information about it, either architecturally or about Brahe's time there, even though it was destroyed? There's quite a bit of information about it. Um, there, you know, there's a lot of uh, there, a lot of scholars from all over Europe came to uh, Uranenburg to Tycho's castle, and so there's 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 a pretty good written record of some of the things that were there and some of and and 
plans and pictures and things like that, um, that really gave a good sense of what the place was like. Um, so I drew upon that. Um, and even though I, I wasn't actually able to go there myself, I was able to use some of that to create that world. Going back to the research of the lives of court dwarves, I imagine that might have made for some unpleasant reading. Uh, how widespread was the use of dwarfs as entertainment at the time? What's so interesting, and this is something that Jep himself learns in the book, is that there's this history of court dwarves that dates really back to the Egyptians. I mean, the Egyptians, um, the Chinese um, uh, emperors, um, you know, all sort of different royals um, and sort of nobles in Europe um, surrounded themselves with, with dwarves. And so this was a sort of longstanding practice. And the treatment of dwarves really could range um, from them being treated as, as real companions um, to them being put in these situations uh, that were very demeaning to them. Um, and so it, it did make for a very sad reading because because particularly in some courts, um, there was less respect for them and they were treated, um, you know, as curiosities um, and freaks. Um, and yet, you know, you can see in those paintings of Velasquez what a deep inner life a lot of these dwarves had. And what was so interesting to me was that duality of being treated so poorly and yet being allowed into this inner world of these European courts and being able to see, you know, what really goes on there from a sort of front front seat view. Mm-hmm. And as far as I understand it, some of the indignities that Jep and the other dwarves face in the book are based on things that took place in real life, whether it's Jep popping out of a pie or Leah being dressed up like a bird and kept in a cage have all those things be real things rather than things that I just made up and mm. thought meaning. I mean, I tried to choose to choose real things like the pie and like being having to dress up in costume and things like that, um, that really were part of the historical record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I just loved to, you know, to sort of read about that um, and about their status as outsiders, because I think at first, um, you know, you might think that this is a book about somebody who has nothing to do with your own life. But the more you read about the lives of the court dwarves, you realize that they really were as outsiders um, and insiders at the same time, that they capture something about us um, and about the experience, particularly of adolescence, where you're both an insider and an outsider. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, going back to what you were saying about, uh, you know, the relationship between astronomy and astrology, it is, you know, it's such a fascinating period in that, like, you know, these scientists are working, you know, to map and better understand sort of the movements of the stars, yet there's, you know, at the same time, they're making star charts and, you know, sending, sending them to, you know, to royals and everything like that. Um, how long was that? Did you get a sense through your research and study, like, how long that sort of duality continued where the the two sort of sciences, you know, so to speak, were, were really closely entwined like that? It, you know, it continued for a little while after this. Um, I mean, I was sort of interested in this period because for a long time I, I, I've always loved um, the Dutch Golden Age. And that's the period that happens just after the story takes place. And, you know, after that, and you get into the story of America, I mean, free will is really a big part of our story and our national character in this sense that we can, you know, shape our own destiny. Um, and it really comes out of the science, you know, the science continues um, to to sort of veer toward that direction. Um, but I, what I found so interesting is the time right before that, when people really were moving toward that enlightenment, but, were, but there was so much, um, you know, duality, where people still sort of struggled with both or believed in both. And Tico, to me, was such a compelling character, because the more I read about him, the more I discovered that he, he himself had his own arguments and, and beliefs about 
fate and free will that really sort of mirrored kind of my own. And, and you know, he had written a, um, a book where he had talked about how he thought that people can change their destiny, that a man can sort of uh, can shape the stars using his own, the force of his own mind. But that was a really revolutionary idea. And he kind of proposed that, but at the same time still drew up horoscopes. Um, so that really, that, I found that so interesting. So history plays strong roles in all three of your books, and you also have real-life historical figures making appearances, uh, such as Tycho Brahe and his daughter and this one. Um, how do you approach writing people who actually existed? I love to pick characters. Often the characters that interest me most are these footnote characters, these characters who um, are sort of on the sidelines of history and have a front row view, but people don't necessarily know their full story. And that gives me a lot of um, freedom as a novelist to type, to, to shape that story. Um, but with, with, you know, Tico, there was a lot written about him. And so, you know, I was able to use some of that historical research to build the story around him. And yet the characters that are sort of the biggest characters of the story, Jep and, and Tico's daughter, um, who emerges as a very important character in the book, uh, are both ones where there's a little bit less about in the historical record. Um, so I love to choose these characters that are sort of on the sidelines that are a little bit, um, you know, less sort of well-known. And so now as you, as you, you know, worked your way through the book and, you know, knowing that you had, you know, sort of this uh, you know, family history of, you know, uh, astro- astrology and, and the background, I'm curious, have your feelings toward the balance between fate and free will, have they, have they shifted over the years? Did they shift over the course of writing the book? Were there any, or had you sort of, these things you'd sort of come to an understanding of in your own life at this point already and kind of knew how you sort of felt? Great question. Growing up, I would really vacillate between the two. I mean, I, you know, I found a lot of comfortology. I was almost like family religion for me. Um, but at the same time, as I became a teenager, I became really skeptical of it. And, you know, I, I remember just, you know, sort of feeling, I, I would actually read the newspaper horoscopes, which my mom thought were really baloney because real horoscopes aren't just, you know, the same for everyone who was born that month. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's been something that I go back and forth on. and And so, I really feel that, the um the question when i wrote this book was to sort those feelings out about fate and free will and and you know how i felt about them um and you know i really didn't come to a complete conclusion and but what i did come to is this idea that um I do think we live in a world of uncertainty. And I think that that's why my mom turned to astrology. That's why people have, you know, various belief systems is to give them a sense of security in in an insecure and uncertain world. And the question for me, and I think the question that Jep begins to explore in this book is how do you live in an uncertain world? You know, how how do you make your choices and your decisions and how do you sort of um, find your place in that world knowing that things are changing on you all the time and that you can't control everything? So, I do believe in fate um, and, and I do think that, you know, not perhaps in the sense that that the planets will tell you what's going to happen, but that there are things, that there are circumstances in your life that you can't control. And, and I do think that it's very important to think about this question of how do you act when you know that there are certain things that are out of your control? And how do you make decisions about who you're going to be and the behavior that you, you know, that, that the way you behave? Um, so, so I think that, you know, the book helped me think about that. Um, and, you know, I think Jep comes to some conclusions at the end of the book that are kind of similar to the ones that I came. But I, but I, but I leave the book with a lot of open questions. The book is an exploration. It's not an answer. Mm-hmm. 
so I noticed this book was sold to Disney in the two-book deal. So I have to ask, do you have any plans to return to Jep's story? This is this was a standalone book for me. I really felt that I told this story um, from you know start to finish. Um, and uh, the next book I have in the works is a middle grade fantasy. <laughs> so- <laughs> and any chance readers might hear more from Jack and Yuri from the Night Tourist? Write one more book of the Night Tourist series. Okay. Uh, so it's it's. I still think that there's one more one more uh, chapter of that story to be written. Very good. And uh, finally, you know, when we first spoke way back in 2007, when you know your first book uh, was published, and right then you were about to give birth to your first child, and now I understand you have two, right? Yes, I do. Uh, congratulations. Uh, um, so I'm curious if uh, if having had children too now, and especially now that you know your children are getting you know getting older a little bit, you're reading with them, I assume, if that's um, shaped or changed the way you write or think about your writing. Sure. Well, I, I you know my son and I are reading James and the Giant Peach right now, <laughs> which is a great. Book. And it's it's just so it's just so much fun to rediscover those books with him. Um, you know, one of the things I think that having the kids and reading with them has sort of made me think more and more about a story and the importance of it. And you know, you can have a whole book of ideas, and Jep is a book chock full of history and chock full of ideas. And it's kind of um, they're it's filled with what I call toy surprises. I mean, you could read the book um, and then learn all about the history and learn of all about the sort of you know the ideas behind it and the philosophy and all of that. The book needs to succeed foremost, first and foremost, as a story, um, as a story about someone that you develop a relationship with and care about and want to know what happens to them next. And I think my children keep reminding me of that um, when I read with them, that that's so important, that you, that that's, you know, a book lives and dies on, on whether you care about the characters and what's going to happen to them. Well, great. Well, I think that's all the time we have uh, for today. But uh, thank you again, Catherine, for giving us a peek at the story behind this book. Thank you. Once again, Catherine Marsh's new novel is Jet Who Defied the Stars, just out from Hyperion Books. Thank you for listening to PW KidsCast. Cast.